0: turn to the letter of Jude, the second last letter in the New Testament. Uh, Last week we considered the first seven verses, and this morning we're going to consider verses 8 to 16, but I'm going to read all of verses 1 to 16 so that we have the context. So let us hear God's word. Relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and that they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they've committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, their loud mouthed boasters showing favouritism to gain advantage. That's a dark passage and we'll need to consider it soberly. I want to ask with a uh, begin with a, a question does it really matter if I think some bitter or resentful thoughts this week? After all, I can confess them and be forgiven. Does it really matter if I speak sharply and unkindly to my mum or to my teenage son or to my boss this week? After all, I can confess it and be forgiven. Does it really matter if I say something behind somebody's back that does them down or on social media? I can confess it and be forgiven. Does it really matter? Does it really matter if I am ungodly? And in some ways ungodly is is the the sort of theme word of this letter. In verse 4, which sets the agenda, Jude, the uh, half-brother of James, is a brother of James and the half-brother of Jesus. He writes to, to certain churches and he says there are people who've crept in unnoticed, who are ungodly people. And they turn the grace of our God into sensuality, life without moral boundaries. They deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And in in today's passage, in verse fifteen, he uses ungodly four times. We'll we'll, we'll come to a little little bit later, and then he uses it again in verse eighteen in next week's passage. They're ungodly. Does it matter? Now, in some ways, as a preacher, there are. There are two reasons why a preacher might not want to preach this passage. One is that it's, it is really negative. The whole passage, verses 8 to 16, is negative. It's really negative. These are the warnings of love. They have to be given, just as you will warn a child not to do something that will endanger their life. So it's not wrong. It's not a bad thing. But you don't, it doesn't sort of lift your spirits to think, now I'm going to preach a really negative passage. But I am because it's there. The other thing I just want to mention at the very beginning is that um, one of the puzzles of the letter of Jude is that at least twice he refers to stuff um, that's not in the Old Testament. It's not even in the Apocrypha. It's stuff in between the sort of end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, lots of stuff was written. Of course it was. Lots of pious things were written. I've got two large hardback volumes at home with lots of them. You can hold a door open in a hurricane um, with them, which is probably the best thing to do with most of them. <laughs> There's a lot of this stuff that was, was written. Um, sometimes they, they, they took the name of some ancient figure, like uh, the, the, the one in verse 14 is Enoch, but others would be Abraham or Jacob or Elijah or Adam or all sorts of uh, of people. And it was a sort of dramatic device, we would probably call it. And this pious stuff was written, and there's lots of it around. And some of it's pretty weird, and some of it's more um, encouraging. And the question is, what's Jude doing? Because in verse 14, he quotes from a book called One Enoch. Which is a whopper. I mean, it's 108 chapters. I have read it. Most of it's really dull. Some of it's very strange. Um, but he, he quotes from it, and you're thinking, okay. So why is he doing that? And in verse nine, when he talks about the archangel Michael disputing with the devil, somewhere in that that sort of stuff that was flying around um, was that story. Although that particular story has got lost, so we don't know quite where it where it exactly it, it, it was. But it was around, and what's Jude doing, referring to all these things? And I just want to say a little preliminary word about this, so that when we get there, we won't be tripped up. Um, the first thing is that it seems that Jude's readers, probably Christians from a Jewish background, we don't know for sure, but probably from a Jewish background, a uh, lot of them would evidently have been familiar with this stuff. They'd have subscribed to the Enoch podcasts. Um, in our terms. They'd have been used to this kind of thing. You could refer to these things and he could assume that they would know what he was talking about, much as we might be able to refer to Harry Potter or the Lord of the Rings or something like that. And we'd probably assume in our culture that there's a a fair chance that people know what we're talking about. These are well-known stories. Uh, It may well be that Jude's readers had quite a high view of these things, But here's the thing, the fact that a Bible writer quotes from somebody doesn't mean that they're saying it's inspired Scripture. Often in the New Testament you get a formula like, it is written, or David said, or Moses said, in which case the writer is saying, this is inspired Scripture, this has the authority of Scripture. But a number of times New Testament writers do other things. Paul in 2 2 Timothy, he refers to Janus and Jambra, who, who feature various magicians in some of this kind of literature. Um, he quotes in, in Acts, 20, Acts 17 and in Titus 1 from Greek poets. In John chapter 11, Caiaphas, the high priest, who is a wicked and evil man, is said to have prophesied when he says something. So the fact that somebody um, quotes, a New Testament writer quotes somebody, doesn't mean it's inspired scripture All it means is that at this point, in saying this, they got it right. (laughs) That's what Paul means when he quotes from some of the the, the Greek poets. They were right about that. And Jude is saying, in effect, they were right about this. Um, You know the story. They're right about this. So I just thought I'd mention that so that when we get there, you won't feel um, tripped up. There are other things that can be said. You might want to ask more um, uh, afterwards, over lunch or something. So there's two things I want to say from this passage. It's a very dense passage, but I want to say two things. Uh, In answer to the question, does ungodliness matter? Would it matter if this week I do this or that or the other that's ungodly? Um, One, it matters because it destroys us. I'm going to take this from verses 8, 9, 10. And then from the rest of the passage, 11 to 16, it matters because it endangers others. So those are the the, the headlines. It destroys us and it endangers others. So verse 8, in like manner, that is like the people in verses 5, 6, and 7, the wilderness generation, uh, the angels of Genesis 6, and Sodom and Gomorrah, in like manner, these people, the people who've sneaked in, infiltrated the churches, Relying on their dreams, so they're dreamers, they just dream up the stuff that they say and do. These are, these are sort of false prophet dreams. And what, what they do, he says, is they defile the flesh. In other words, they make their bodies and their minds dirty, unfit for the presence of God. They reject authority, which is the authority of our Master and Lord Jesus, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. And you'll see the word blaspheme comes again in verse 9 uh, about the archangel Michael and again in verse 10, these people blaspheme. So it's just worth worth thinking about this as to what's going on. The glorious ones is a way of speaking of angels. We thought a little bit about angels last week. We probably ought to think about angels perhaps a bit more than we do. The New Testament speaks about them. Um, uh, uh, We tend just to sort of put them to one side. And the thing about angels that we need to get hold of is that um, they're real supernatural beings, and they have a role to play in God's government of the universe. You meet them at the beginning of the book of Job, and somewhere else in the Old Testament as a sort of heavenly cabinet meeting, um, and they have a role to play in God's government of the world. And in particular, the New Testament teaches in at least three places that angels... Are the ones through whom the law of God, the law of Moses, was put in place? Galatians three put in place through angels. Stephen says in Acts seven, an angel spoke to Moses, and the people received the law as delivered by angels. In Hebrews two, the writer says the law was the message declared by angels. So there's a sense when you when you read about blaspheming glorious ones, what you're doing in in Bible language. Is you're saying to these creatures or of these creatures who shine with something of the glory of God and they have a, a part to play in God's government of the universe and in particular in the law, you're, you're, you're saying, I don't care what you say. I'm going to reject your authority. I'm going to revile you. I'm going to speak against that. I'm going to decide what's right and what's wrong. That's what's going on with these people. So they're saying, I decide what to do and what's right and what's wrong, and nobody's going to tell me. No authority of God is going to tell me. Uh, And the theme of blasphemy goes on in verse 9. Now, verse 9 is really puzzling. It's just worth saying. Um, I've met people who've been brought up with a Christian background where everything in the Bible is supposed to be absolutely clear and simple. And what happens is, if somebody's been brought up like that, they, they discover that there are bits of the Bible that are really puzzling. The Bible itself recognizes that. Some bits that are really, really puzzling. And so they begin to get disillusioned, and they wonder if anything's secure. But verse 9 is one of those things that's really puzzling. Let me tell you up front, nobody knows what it means. I can tell you afterwards like, roughly what I think it probably means, but I may be wrong. But the key thing in terms of the theme of the passage is that there's a blaspheming going on in verse 8, a speaking against right and wrong in God's authority. And the archangel Michael, who appears in Daniel chapters 10 and 12, and again in the book of Revelation in chapter 12, in some way there's a story in which he's contending with the devil So the the archangel Michael is like a defense witness for the people of God. The devil is like the prosecution witness against the people of God. He's the accuser. And for some reason, they're disputing about the body of Moses. I can say more about what that may have been about. But the point is that even this archangel, this senior angel, doesn't presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. He doesn't say, I'm going to tell you what's right and I'm going to tell you what's wrong. He says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord is going to decide what's right and what's wrong. That's the key thing. You get something a little bit similar in the prophecy of Zechariah in chapter 3, where an angel or, or the Lord says, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. You get something a little bit similar at the beginning, in, in, early in Revelation chapter 12 as well, but there's not time to go into that. But the point is, verse 10, that these people blaspheme all that they don't understand. So what they're doing is they're kicking over the traces. They're saying, you say that God, through his angels, has put in place a law of right and wrong, and that's how we ought to live, and we couldn't care about that. We're going to decide how to live. And look what happens to them at the end of verse 10. They, they, they blaspheme what they don't understand. They don't understand the truth. But look at the end of verse 10. Isn't this dreadful? They're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So there is something they understand. And what they understand is their instincts. So when somebody um, says... Uh, this feels right to me about any kind of behavior it doesn't matter what the behavior is it may be a, uh, a sexual behavior it may be a resentment or a bitterness uh, whatever the behavior is this feels right to me um, all, that it, all that means when you say it feels right is that it feels right and it may be that I, it feels right to want a comfortable life it feels right to push for praise and glory it feels right for people to praise me it feels right to want more money and if it feels right all that means is that it feels right you put a bull in a field of cows forgive this imagery but it's pretty close to what jude uses you put a field a bull in a field of cows there's no morality going on it's just instinct that's all that's happening it's animal instinct and so jude is saying if you decide right and wrong you're becoming less human. You're just you're just following your instincts, and it will destroy you. So let me just give some examples. If I have resentful or bitter feelings, and most of us find at some point in our lives that resentful feelings or bitter feelings well up inside us, if I decide to give in to those, I will become a resentful person and it'll shape me until I'm eaten up by bitterness, and it will destroy me. Or if someone has a a very natural desire not to forgive. Somebody's wronged you, they've said something, done something to wrong you, and it may be very serious, and it may be true that they have. And you decide not to forgive them, and you persist in not forgiving them. You say, well, I am not going to forgive him or her then you will become an unforgiving person. You'll become a self-righteous person and that will eat away at your being and destroy you. If I give way to covetousness and greed, so I want something, I want, I want, I want, and I give in to that and I become a covetous, a greedy person and my greed defines me and destroys me. And so the point is that this Kicking over the traces that these people were doing in these churches might have been attractive in some ways. You can imagine it might have been easily how it might have been attractive in some ways to think I'll I'll go with them. But Jude says it destroys them. Don't go that way. It'll destroy you. But from verse 11, there's a little bit of a shift of gear. Up to now, he's been talking about people who've destroyed themselves. The wilderness generation in verse 5, the angels in verse 6, Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. And these people like that, they destroy themselves. But from verse 11 uh, through, I think, to verse 16, ungodliness not only destroys me, it endangers others. And what Jude is going to be saying to us here, and he he does it with a whole pile of Old Testament stuff and, and simple imagery and pictures, um, is he says... It's really dangerous to be anywhere close to people like that in church. So he starts with three Old Testament examples. They walked in the way of Cain, Cain who murdered his brother, uh, Genesis chapter 4. And Cain becomes the leader, the sort of ringleader of people who are hostile to the people of God. In 1 John chapter 3, you talk about, John talks about people who follow the way of Cain. Cain is a dangerous person to have. In a church. Anybody who's Cain-like, and there were people in the churches to which John wrote, one John, who were like Cain, following the way of Cain, is dangerous. And then he says, Balaam, you can read later, Numbers chapters 22 to 25, Balaam is hired as a pagan prophet to curse Israel, he fails, but we discover later in Numbers 31 that he advises the king of Moab, is against israel he advises him seduce them i can't curse them but you get your beautiful women and they will seduce the men into sexual immorality and into idolatry and that tragically succeeds you read in numbers 25 the tragedy as that happens and so balaam is a dangerous person to have in church and then korah We had an Old Testament reading in Numbers 16. Korah is a really dangerous person to have in church because he stirs up, you read Numbers 16, it's a big rebellion, really threatens the government of the people of God under Moses. There are 250 people, they're leading men, it's a significant rebellion, it's a big deal in Old Testament history in the wilderness. And when Korah is judged in our Old Testament reading, again and again God says, you keep well clear because if you 're too close to Cora and Nathan and Adar, Abiram and you 're close too close to these guys who kick over the traces, you will be be swallowed up with them, and so everybody 's frightened and they keep at least anyone with any sense keeps well clear of them so again, Cora is a dangerous person to have in a church because if you get close to him, you yourself are in danger and and, and Jude then uses some very vivid pictures. Verse twelve: They're hidden reefs. They're like rocks in the sea. Your love feasts a bit like our fellowship lunch, although probably more like the Lord's supper. But um, they're hidden. They're like rocks. And if you're a sailor, if you've been sailing, and you know there are rocks in the sea, if you're a sensible sailor, you keep well clear. You don't go anywhere near the rocks uh, because you know that if you get close to the rocks, you risk shipwreck. And Jude says, you you go close to these people. And you risk shipwreck in your faith. And he says they're shepherds, so they're pastors. Even more dangerous. Here are people, they're not just, they're not just in church, but they're sort of, they're kind of where I am now. They've got the microphone. And they're really dangerous because they're just feeding themselves. They're not caring for God's flock. And Jude gives four vivid pictures from nature. One from sky, one from the earth, one from the sea. And one from the heavens. They're waterless clouds from the, in the sky, swept along. You know, we'd be rather pleased to have waterless clouds in our country. But if you're in a dry country and you see clouds, you think, "Oh, hooray! It's going to rain. Things are going to grow." Uh, we 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 think, "Oh no, it's going to rain again." <laughs> but the, but the, that's what you think in a in a hot country. And so you 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 see these men and you think, "Oh, it's going to rain. There's going to be something life-giving is going to come from them." but they just just sweep along by the winds, swept along by the winds, nothing comes. And then the trees, that children's talk, you look for the trees for fruit, you hope there'll be something life-giving from them, but they are fruitless. And then the sea, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. You don't hope for good in the Bible imagery from the sea, and you don't get it. From these people, and then in the heavens, wandering stars—what we call planets, not the fixed stars like the the, the the constellations, like the Plough or Orion or Cassiopeia, which is about the only ones I know—they're um, fixed. You can navigate by them. The Pole Star is where the Pole Star is. You can navigate by it, and you you you'll probably be all right. But a planet comes from the word to wander, and if you've studied any astronomy, you'll know that you you can't say where. Jupiter will be, unless you work out where it will be tonight, um, because it'll be somewhere else tomorrow night relative to all the others. It wanders; it's a wandering star, and so you can't navigate it by it. You follow these people. There's there's no moral compass to them, and darkness has been reserved to them for them. And now Jude takes these words from this old book of Enoch about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, you read in Genesis 5, count inclusively, and Enoch is number seven. And he prophesied, he said, so here are these these words in this book, 1 Enoch. And it's really a summary of stuff that you get in the inspired Old Testament prophets. You get this sort of thing in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Habakkuk, Zechariah, probably elsewhere. Look. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones, there are the angels again, to execute judgment on all, watch for all, and to convict all the ungodly, watch for the ungodly, of all their deeds of ungodliness that they've committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, all ungodly, all ungodliness, all ungodly sinners, it's all going to end in judgment so keep clear of them and then verse 16 to finish off, they're grumblers just like the wilderness generation in the Old Testament, they're grumbling it's all so unfair there's no point keeping God's law there's no point keeping God's boundaries of right and wrong Um, it's a miserable business to do that Uh, don't grumble but the thing about grumbling is that it's infectious you know, if you've got a a church meeting and somebody starts grumbling. It's only a matter of time before other people join in, isn't it? Do you remember when the, the woman poured that amazing, expensive perfume over Jesus and Judas Iscariot grumbled? And then you read in one of the other gospels and you find that they all grumbled. So Judas Iscariot says, oh, that's a waste of money, isn't it? That's a waste of money. That's a rubbish thing to do. And before long, everybody else is saying, yeah, it's a rubbish thing to do, isn't it? So grumbling is infectious. And they're malcontent. They're discontented. They're people who say, if only God would give me this job, then I'd be content. If only God would give me this house or this or a marriage or children, then I'd be content. And they follow their own desires. And they're loud-mouthed boasters, and they're dangerous because they show favoritism to gain advantage, and we could pause on any of these and say more, but I've been trying to think how this might realistically play out among us, because the danger, and I said this last week, is that you read this really dark stuff from Jude, and you think it's really dark, but we haven't got that here, thank God, in this church fellowship. And so you're thinking, I I do understand that it matters, but I can't really feel that it's very important for us. So let me give you two or three examples. I have little conversations that might happen. Imagine you say to me, so how was your week? And I say, well, my bike was stolen on Thursday. Actually, it wasn't. This is a made-up conversation. My bike was stolen on Thursday, but it's okay. The insurance will pay. I'd actually forgotten to lock it, so technically it wasn't insured, but the insurance won't know about that. And you say, well, that's good. It's just a little snippet of conversation, isn't it? And I've just said, well, I can claim on the insurance, never mind that it wasn't locked. And I let slip that the Eighth Commandment doesn't matter very much. I can cheat a bit, and it's okay. So what happens when I say that to you over Fellowship Lunch? You begin to think, oh, I sort of respected him. Maybe it doesn't matter very much. Maybe I could do the same. And so you begin to think ungodliness doesn't matter. Or somebody says, my girlfriend and I had a lovely few days away. We shared a room to save money so we could afford it. Oh, that's good, you say. Good that you could afford it. Just little conversation. And they let slip that the seventh commandment doesn't matter very much. And you go away thinking, well, I looked up to him, so maybe it doesn't matter so very much. And so the ungodliness spreads. Or someone says, my boss said some very unfair things to me last week, you know, I really hate her. It's just little conversation, isn't it? It's just a little snippet of conversation. But you're thinking, "I, I, I let slip that the sixth commandment doesn't matter very much. I can hate a fellow human being and it's okay. And you go away thinking, well, I guess that's right. Maybe it doesn't matter as much as I thought it did. And so the ungodliness spreads. Or I say something to you about someone else behind their back and it's not quite true and it makes them look bad. And I say to you that the ninth commandment doesn't really matter very much. And you go away with your resolve to speak truth weakened. I don't know if those are good examples or not, but you can think of the kinds of ways in which little conversations that we have that indicate, they just give give little evidences that I don't really care about godliness and it becomes infectious and it endangers others. That, I think, is why Jude is writing so very, very strongly and saying it matters so much. But let me close with something to give us hope. Ungodliness will destroy you or me. Ungodliness will endanger others. But quite wonderfully, Jesus shows us the exact opposite of these people. Everything that these people are in these churches to whom Jude is writing, everything that they are, Jesus is not. They kick over the traces. Jesus submits to the authority of the Father, to the law of God. I was reading this morning's words of a lovely old hymn of Isaac Watts, addressed to Jesus, My dear Redeemer and my Lord, I read my duty in your word, but in your life, The law appears drawn out in living characters. Such was your truth and such your zeal. Such deference to your father's will. Such love and meekness so divine. I would transcribe and make them mine. Be thou my pattern. Make me bear more of your gracious image here. Then God the judge shall own my name amongst the followers of the Lamb. Jesus is the very opposite of these people. Jesus knew and lived and spoke as though our ungodliness really matters. He believed that. And Jesus was destroyed. But he was destroyed by our sin, not by his. And therefore Jesus is safe to be near. If it's dangerous to have a Cain in any church, it's dangerous to have a Balaam in any church, it's dangerous to have a Korah in any church, it's Dangerous in any church to have any of us who don't really care about godliness. It's infectious, it endangers us all. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is like a cloud that brings life, giving rain. Jesus is like a tree bearing good fruit, like a star to guide us through life. Jesus is safe to be near. Jesus is not the shepherd feeding only himself. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. May God help us to treasure Jesus and for the image of Jesus to be impressed by the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives more and more. Amen.